welcome to the Schwepp Podcast. Today we are talking to a man who knows a thing or two about Plato's Atlantis story, Professor Christopher Gill, emeritus professor now enjoying an active retirement from the University of Exeter. Plato's Atlantis story is one of the most fertile little episodes. I mean, Plato is an incredibly influential philosopher in everything he did, but this story somehow seems to have had an incredible life of its own, and it's been taken on by a number of fantastic and wide-ranging approaches. So I thought we could talk about the actual nuts and bolts of the story, how it appears in Plato's work, what it's about, what happens in it, that sort of thing, contextualize it. And um, this is interesting, if for no other reason, because no one knows that this story comes from Plato. If you ask people, where does Atlantis come from? Nine out of 10 of them are gonna say, uh, well, I don't know what they'll say, but it won't be from the, the West's greatest philosopher. No, that's right. I mean, most people think, oh, this is something that there are many uh, occurrences of and that Plato picked up and perhaps made it, if they know anything about Plato, and made his own version. The, the, in fact, it's completely different. There are no occurrences of the myth before Plato and all later um, mentions of the myth in antiquity and modern times basically go back to him. So he, <laughs> he made it up. Yeah. <laughs> Not much doubt about that. And we can talk a little bit later on about about um, the various you know things that people have made of it. But, mm. but essentially, we are talking about an idea in Plato. Let's, first of all, try to contextualize this idea very in as much detail as we can, given the format. The myth is actually presented in two chunks, strangely enough. So I wonder if you can just lay that out, how that works. Yes, it's very fascinating. Here, as in many other cases, the dialogue form, the way it's presented, is extremely interesting and artful, as Plato always is. Yes, what happens is this. Uh, Socrates appears and talks to a number of people, and he recounts quite a lot of Plato's Republic. Perhaps I should say that. The, the, the dialogue Timaeus, which, of course, most people only associate with the creation story, also has this very interesting prelude. So first of all, Socrates uh, presents the Republic and says, I'd like to see the Republic put into action. And then we have an initial response to that by Critias, who tells him that, that, um, that he's got a story which will be absolutely just right for what he wants. Then Critias says, oh, by the way, um, before we do that, Timaeus here is going to tell the story of the universe and of the birth of humankind. So that comes in as quite a surprise. Um, and anyway, that goes on for pages and pages and pages. So we have the huge and famous uh, creation story, which goes on right to the end of the Timaeus, which is a very long dialogue. And then, only in the Critias, do we come back to the story of Atlantis. And then we have a, some more discussion. And then after a bit, Critias tells us the story of Atlantis and primeval Athens. So we have it in two bits. We've got a, a kind of prelude, uh, a prequel, um, and then we have the story itself, except we don't have the story itself, because what happens is uh, Critias sets the story up in certain interesting ways, and then Plato breaks off in mid-sentence, uniquely. He just breaks off, and that's it. Now, uh, let's back up for a second. We're dealing with two dialogues here now, three really, the dialogue that Timaeus, which is referring back to the incredibly long political dialogue, the Republic, mm -hmm. Socrates saying, here we are again, we're all gathered, 
Um, that, remember that republic we were talking about? Let's get into that a bit more. I'd like to see it illustrated in a concrete way. And Critias says, yes, I can do that for you. But first, here's this amazing cosmological myth from Timaeus. Mm -hmm. Then we shift to the dialogue, the Critias, mm -hmm. at some point. Mm -hmm. is, is the Critias a sequel to the Timaeus? Yes. But it's unfinished. It's unfinished. It is an unfinished sequel. In fact, there might have been, uh, we're given the impression, there might have been three dialogues because Hermocrates, uh, a third speaker, is there too. And he, there's a strong hint that he will take over the story, but he never does. So what we have is the Timaeus Critias, at least. We have a pair of dialogues. We do have that sometimes in Plato. We have dialogues explicitly linked. We have the Theotetus, Sophist and Statesman, for instance. Not often, but, but this is one. So they are a pair. They are a rare pair. Of dialogues and the Atlantis story is is spaced over the two the two dialogues. I suppose we'll never know what Plato was thinking. One could play with the idea that he that Timaeus never was finished as a dialogue, that he was still working on that one work, but somehow it got issued or whatever as a dialogue on his own. Because the way the way the break that comes is um, in Medias Res, it seems to me. Doesn't you mean really the Timaeus' creation story? Well, between just the way the dialogues flow into each other, the way that Timaeus ends, it feels like it could naturally just flow into the Critias. He's like, and now Critias is going to speak, and then we have third speaker. Yes, I think it all makes... Well, I'm not... I think it all makes fairly good sense, at least from the point of view of the Atlantis story. I think that when you put together the bits that we have, there is a rather interesting story that one can tell, and there is what I've called a kind of quasi-dialectical exploration of the theme which Socrates presents. And I think one can see a sort of logic in it. Shall I, shall I present that logic in sort of general terms? Well, what Socrates does, we, he summarises the Republic. Not all the Republic, but, but quite a lot of it. So he leaves out the philosopher kings, Indeed. interestingly. Yes, philosopher rulers, we should say, because yeah. some of them are women, some of them are queens. Um, and, of course, in this age, we don't want to uh, make yes. that mistake. Absolutely But, but uh, anyway, it's philosopher rulers. So... Yes, he leaves out the philosopher rulers, but we haven't, we, what we do have is the social institutions, the social institutions of the Republic. And then Socrates says, it would be wonderful if we could see this ideal state, with its structure and so forth, in action. And I'd love to see a, a big war or some other event where we have the ideal state and an unideal state, a suitable opponent. And then Critias says, well, I, uh, it's terrific that you said that, Socrates, because I have just the thing. He says, just the thing. You've kind of hit it on the mark. And Critias then comes up with this story, which, and there's a lot of sort of folder all about it, having come through his family and so on. And, and then, so he gives this story and he tells us what the story is going to be. And it's a story of a war between primeval Athens and Atlantis. We've never heard about Atlantis before, but... It's going to be uh, that war, and it's a war in which primeval Athens, Athens of 9,000 years before, proved its qualities. So it showed its qualities. So he says various things, which I'll say a bit more about later, about that uh, war. And so then we have, we have, as it were, what, you know, what Socrates wanted. We've got the, the uh, demonstration of it. But then we have this huge, as it were, interruption uh, on the part of Timaeus, now, what's the link between them? Well, I think the link between them is this. I think that both of these stories, the Atlantis story and the Timaeus story, are about the, well, what Shakespeare called giving something a local habitation and a name. It's giving the ideal a concrete, specific 
particular form. It's finding form for the ideal. In the case of the creation story, it's showing that the world, the world we live in, the, the cosmos we live in, is a, a representation or approximation of the ideal. Similarly, in the Atlantis story, we have an approximation or we have an, we have an instantiation of an ideal. We have the ideal state of the Republic, which is, in, which is embodied in primeval Athens. But we also have, what we don't have in the creation story, we also have a counter-ideal. We have a state which doesn't match, which in various ways doesn't come up to the standards of the ideal state. Which is Atlantis. Which is Atlantis. So the Atlantis story, so-called, is really the Athens story. It's a story of primeval Athens. And Atlantis is there as a kind of foil, though, of course, in popular imagination, it's always Atlantis that gets the uh, share of the ascension. So, that's, so that, I think, is the underlying uh, kind of motive for the Atlantis story. It is a story about em- embodiment of the ideal. And in that, there's an interest, and this explains, I think, why the philosopher rulers are left out of the summary of the Republic. Because if you think back to, as it were, middle, what we think of as middle Plato and middle Platonic dialogues, uh, the Phaedo, the Symposium, and, well, the Republic, they, one theme, perhaps above all, unites those, and that is the idea of progress towards knowledge, towards what Plato would regard as real knowledge, knowledge of the forms. How do we get to knowledge of the forms? What ascent or passage or journey will lead us towards the forms? And the Symposium and the Phaedo and the Republic all suggest their own answers. Very complicated and fascinating answers they are too. Phaedrus as well. Well, and Phaedrus too, and perhaps many others too. But but certainly it's a, a central theme. Now, the Timaeus isn't about that. The Timaeus isn't a passageway. It isn't a journey in that way. Nonetheless, it, that doesn't mean that Plato has abandoned the idea that there are you know, forms and that there's a difference between forms and particulars because he refers to that idea in the time years. So what we have is something different here. We have these two, we have the idea, which can of course only really, strictly speaking, be an approximation. We have a, an idea about what the ideal would be like if it were put into practice, if it were put into practice. So we're not concerned with, we, we don't have the kind of intellectual theme which gave rise to the idea of the philosopher rulers, that is, the passage towards knowledge, because that's the role of the philosopher rulers. They are, they are led towards knowledge, and once they have knowledge, they can then guide the state. And what we're told about in the Republic is this passage towards knowledge, much more than we're told, actually, about what they would actually do once they had rule, <laughs> about which we hear almost nothing. So, so it's a different theme. It's, it's the, as I say, it's the embodiment of the ideal, and, and yet, in a way, we do have philosopher rulers in the uh, Atlantis story, in the Timaeus and Critias, because Socrates, when, when he is discussing his interlocutors, he characterises all of them as people who have expertise in both philosophy and politics. And that's why they are good people to tell his story. So we've got the philosopher rulers, only they're speaking to us. <laughs> they're telling us what, as it were, happens, if you like to put it like that, when the ideal is put into action, when we have, when we have um, philosophically uh, guided um, cities, city-state. Now, this is, might be a good point at which to jump into the particular again yes. and talk about these three interlocutors, because mm-hmm. they're all, well, especially Critias is interesting. Timaeus of Locri, as I understand it, 
is not strongly identifiable with a historical figure at all. No, he's almost certainly made up. He's made up. He's made up, and he's made up to be... Well, he's, we're told he's got the political knowledge, but it's, he's really a philosopher. Mm. He's really doing the job that Plato once done philosophically. Yeah. Now, we'll talk about the writings of Timaeus, um, the, the pseudo-Timaeus, in another episode, because that, there's a tradition that springs out of this mm-hmm. guy of Neo-Pythagorean mm-hmm. writing. What about Critias? Now, the, the third... Well, let me take the third one is Hippocrates, and... He, he we, never gets to have his say. Maybe. Well, we don't know much, but he's probably... He's probably the Syracusan politician and general um, who played a key role in the defeat of Athens in the Sicilian expedition in 415 to 413. So he's probably that. Uh, and there is a link we can, I might bring out later t- to the story. But the third one is the much more problematic. Well, problematic in two ways. Partly because we're not quite sure who he is. It might have been so-called Critias the Tyrant, or it might have been his grandfather, now, chronologically, it's his grandfather who had the same name, who works much better. He is a more a chronologically credible link between this discussion, whenever it was, and, but anyway, in the 5th century, sometimes late 5th century, and Solon, the grandfather. But we know nothing about the grandfather. But the person we do know a lot about is Critias the tyrant. And the person that Plato and Socrates knew about in, in gory detail. Right. They, indeed, knew a great deal about them. Critias is a relative of Plato. He's Plato's mother's cousin. They had the same family. And Critias and Socrates knew each other because Critias was one of the many followers of Socrates. But Critias went to the bad, and Critias, uh, he got involved in right-wing conservative political activities. He also quarrelled with Socrates, and he... He tried to involve Socrates in his own political dealings and tried to to incriminate him. Socrates refused. Uh, And then he also possibly tried to pass a law against against people who engaged in in philosophical arguments. So he's he's a very dark and equivocal figure. And he's so he's he's, he's one of the so-called thirty tyrants. They mm. took over Athens after the end of the Peloponnesian War. So there's a highly destabilized Athens. This military junta sort of takes over. Yes, they're the thirty tyrants. They're a pro-Sparta yes. faction within yes. Athenian society who see their moment to yes. take power and exactly begin a process of de-democratizing yeah and taking people's stuff killing people executing people Mm -hmm. exiling people so they wanted to get Socrates and four other guys to go seize some arrest someone bring him to them so Mm -hmm. they can execute him Socrates Mm -hmm. refused Mm -hmm. now why is this guy who allegedly tries to pass a law against philosophy Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. why is he the character in a platonic dialogue well this is (laughs) one of the standing puzzles Of course, maybe it's not him. Maybe it's his grandfather about whom we know nothing. But certainly that name colours the character. Well, it's a standing puzzle. But there are a number of facts that are are relevant. One is that in the Timaeus, I I talked a bit about the difference between the Timaeus and the Critias, or certainly I I want now to stress that point. The way the story is presented in the Timaeus is quite different in focus, or is different in focus, from the way it's presented in the Critias. In the Timaeus, the focus is all on this very old story, which was transmitted to Solon, first of all, the statesman Solon, the lawgiver Solon, and then transmitted through the family of uh, Critias, and nobody knew about it. 
It's all focused on the family and on Athens. Critias thinks it's very wonderful that he, only in his family, his important family, was this great story transmitted. And he also thinks it's wonderful that this story is about Athens. And he summarises it in the Timaeus in a way that echoes strongly the Battle of Marathon, the battle where Athens, uh, on, on land, defeated a great maritime empire. So the, uh, the way the story is presented in the Timaeus is, is very strongly pro-Athenian, but pro-Athens of a certain kind. It's Athens of the past. Pre-democratic Athens. Pre-democratic Athens, exactly. So it's just the sort of story, he, he tells just the sort of story that the, the Critias, the aristocrat, the pro-Spartan, um, it's a very Spartan Athens actually, by the way, that, that, uh, that we see in, in, in the time years, and also in the Critias to some extent. So he's just the sort of person, conservative, backward-looking, elitist, who would be attracted to that kind of story and who tells it in that way with that kind of focus. Focus on family, focus on nation, focus on the past as a, in a kind of political way. So that's, I think, why he's there. Um, he's there as a kind of voice of conservatism, especially in the time years. But in the critics, he's, he's rather different. So I think that, but that's, that's why we have this, this character. Now, before we move on to the, the longer, fuller account of mm. Atlantis and mm. Athens, as we might want to do next, there are a couple more of these standing mysteries I'd like to ask mm -hmm. about. Some are mysteries, some are more just points for interpretation that no one's quite going to agree on. One of the things that always intrigues me about the Timaeus is that the very first line is one, two, three, and then Socrates says, where is the fourth who was here yesterday when we discussed politics? Mm -hmm. So there's this mysterious missing person who's conspicuous by his absence, presumably it's a him. Do you have any thoughts about this at all? <laughs> to be honest, None whatsoever. I don't really. No, there's just so little to go on. Yeah. It is a real puzzle. So who knows? <laughs> do, do you get the feeling that Plato is putting it there as a puzzle? Of course. Plato is always doing things like that. Mm. But what the answer to the puzzle is, I'm afraid I don't know on this case. Now, another thing I wanted to ask about. Well, we have Solon. Just to flesh out the background a little bit here, Solon, the 6th century reformer of Athenian politics, mm -hmm. who's widely considered one of the seven sages, one of the wise people mm -hmm. of the Hellenic world. He's a very revered, not just by Athenians, but by Greeks more generally. He has gone to this place in Egypt, the Saitic region, where he's met up with these wise Egyptian priests. And he tells them what he knows about history, and they say... Famously, O Solon, Solon, the Greeks are always children. And Solon mm -hmm. says, what do you mean? And he says, well, we Egyptians, with our ancient civilization that has survived multiple catastrophes, mm -hmm. have much longer uh, records than you do. You guys just get wiped out periodically, and then you forget everything. So we can tell you about your own history 9,000 years ago because you've forgotten it. What do you make of this recurring catastrophe idea? I mean, obviously we can't say what it means, per se, but it's... It, it, it seems an odd fit in Plato's thought, and it's a very odd idea. You might say you could find it in some aspects of it in some pre-Socratic philosophers, perhaps. Um, maybe Heraclitus, if we had more of him, because, of course, the Stoics will then have an a idea of a recurring cataclysm. Maybe they got that from Heraclitus. 
perhaps Empedocles as well, you could say, but, but it just seems like it comes out of nowhere, this idea that the earth is periodically destroyed by fire and water, and then humans rebuild, and then it gets destroyed again. Do you have any... Well, not really. I mean, the, 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 the flood of Deucalion is a well-established feature of Greek myth. And, of course, if you think back to the Theogony, the idea of, of destruction and periodic destruction is, well, perhaps not in, quite in that form, is, is embedded there. I think the Greeks were aware that there were periodic floods and, 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 and so forth. I mean, why not? They, did, they were aware of it. I think there is though, a, a reason why Plato might stress it, because... Remember, Plato doesn't um, doesn't present his the good features of life as depending on continuity of prosperity, and on, he's not a materialist. I mean, you know, for Plato, the you know the important world is the world of ideas and the world of forms and the world of truths. Now, these are are independent of you know material reality. So he is quite prepared to accept that quite a lot about material reality is, you know, is is poor or is subject to contingency or is or is is affected by by circumstances so i can see why he might be attracted to it i think that's one factor i think the other is that plato is interested in what you might call early historiography he is interested in the process of transmission of the past and how we learn about it i mean that comes out both from the critias and from book 3 of the laws which which is a rather in some ways, a kind of sequel, I think, to the Critias story. And in the in the Critias, for instance, he refers to the effect of soil erosion and deforestation. So evidence of soil erosion, evidence of deforestation, evidence of drying up of, of streams. So he's interested in that. He is interested in probing the past. Mm. And... That's unexpected in a way. It's like he's it, showing his Aristotelian side. He, yes, exactly. Well, Plato's ever, forever, despite what I've just said about his, <laughs> his the idealism of Plato, he, he is ever surprising. Um, and indeed, of course, the Timaeus itself is a huge surprise. The Timaeus, the creation story. Mm. So he, this is someone who, you know, supposedly isn't that bothered about the real world. <laughs> <laughs> material world, but is happy to spend page after page after page and analysing it. So in a way, the the the, the Critias, you know, the, the interest in, in, in periodic destruction and, and reconstruction of the past in spite of discontinuity are, are, you know, hang together. And these are features of his interest. They're better handled in the Critias than the Timaeus. The Timaeus tells what is really a fantastic story that one can have a, an, an accurate description of a historical event that, that was 9,600 years before. I mean, no one else in Athens would have thought that was remotely possible. If you look at what 5th century historians were doing, the great, the great founders of history, Herodotus and Thucydides, they were spending great efforts to reconstruct events which were decades, well, either contemporary with them, in the case of Thucydides, or which were, you know, just, just earlier in the same century. In the case of Herodotus. Basically interviewing people who would, had been there. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what history was about. If you wanted accurate information, that's what you had to do. It's true, Thucydides has what he calls a kind of archaeology, archaeology. But, of course, that he makes it clear that that's very sketchy and, and approximate. Now, what we have in the Atlantis story is, if you like, Plato's archaeology, um, but presented as if, gosh, we have every detail. That's why it really, it, you know, that's why the, the presentation of this by Critias in the Timaeus is so ridiculous, absurd, really. Mm. 
Um, oh, by the way, we haven't uh, said one thing about his the, um, the Timaeus, is that one thing that Timaeus is terribly keen on pointing out is that the story was true. It was absolutely true. Um, he's very keen on this. Plato, uh, Socrates isn't quite so bothered about that as he is. He's sort of rather, he makes rather equivocal comments about this. So at one point he says, oh, it's probably very important that that story is true. He says, the story, uh, it, it's Pamega. It's, 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 a, it's a big thing. It's really important. It's a really important that that's true. I suppose, he says, poo, I suppose. Yeah. So very ironic, very, or very ambivalent, not ironic. So Socrates isn't that bothered about factual truth. Critias is bothered about the factual truth, or he claims that it's, it's factually true. Now, why is there that there? That's, that's a curious detail. I find that utterly baffling, so I'd love well, to know your impression. Okay, a little bit later on, we have another... A uh, big statement about truth, what can achieve truth, and that's in the Math of Timaeus. And he says he's going to give, he's going to recount the, the foundation, the origin of the material world, the cosmos. And he says this story cannot be completely true because it isn't about things that are amenable to exact truth. And for Plato, of course, the things that are amenable to exact truth are the form, and they can achieve truth. As this is the um, ontology and epistemology of the Republic. A priori, almost they are true. A priori, true. Yeah. Whereas facts, you know, particular facts, material entities, are going to only approximate. They will only have a likeness to the truth. Therefore, his story, his creation story which is, of course, hugely complicated and analytic and so on, is just presented as an echoes mythos, as a likely story. So here we have these two contrasting statements. One person who's, who says, oh, this factual story is absolutely true, and another person who acknowledges that, that his account is only likely. Now, what's clear is that the, the Critias of the Timaeus, the Critias of the Timaeus is on a quite different wavelength from Socrates and Timaeus. He, he has a different kind of understanding of what really matters. As I said, you know, when he presents the story, he's bothered about his family, he's bothered about, about Athens, he's yeah. bothered about the conservative past. So that's another indication that the, the Critias, the character of the Critias in the, in the Timaeus is, is not really in tune with, with Socrates and is not, as it were, getting what Socrates wants. By the Critias, it's a rather different story. Before we move on to that, yes. um, I was, I'm wondering if you could just summarize the actual story of Atlantis as it's presented in the Timaeus, and then maybe we can bring out any differences that crop up in the longer version we get in the Critias. Well, I think the, the bones of the story are similar in both dialogues. What we have, we have a great power on an island in the west, this, this huge island in the west, far, far larger than anything bigger than Europe and Asia combined. Although they didn't know what Asia was, they would you know, include the Near East. So huge, whopping, yeah. ridiculously big. And it's in the far west, and it's a great power, and it had kings, and it had a huge navy, and Atlantis attacked Europe, and conquered Europe as far as Athens, and then Athens resisted uh, this power successfully. Oh, this is the they... Athens of 9,000 yes. years ago, yes. who are bigger 
Athens is bigger than... Well, yes, it's bigger. It's a bit bigger. <laughs> it's nothing like as big as Atlantis. We, Atlantis is huge. We're given a great sort of military roll call at the end of Critias, and it's, it's huge. It's thousands. Of, but Athens has about 20,000 guardians, the auxiliaries of the, of the Republic, guards, military people. So what Athens had was this tremendously strong army. There's no mention of Athens having a navy. But anyway, the Athenian army defeated the Atlantean army um, we don't know anything about the, the navy. And then in a single day, <laughs> there was a big earthquake and flood and uh, the Athenian army vanished beneath, beneath the earth, was swallowed up by the earth. Uh, There's another somewhat implausible <laughs> detail. And then the island of Atlantis was also swallowed up. Implausible, but also bizarre. Bizarre. And it, it, bizarre. it reminds me a bit of the, um, the Gates of Horn, Gates of Ivory at the end of book six of the... Mm. Aeneid, like mm. is, is he's built up this enormous tail and it's all there and then he just very summarily kind of turns it on its head and says, oh everyone died yes yes that's yeah. what they do that's what very they do. odd very odd so it is basically the same story as presumed but what happens in the Critias is we don't have really any of this stress on the war or on the transmission of the story in the Critias this is focuses rather on setting up the two states and and telling us about them and what their structure was their government and their location and, and this kind of thing. And we get a description of Atlantis which involves quite a bit of ingenious topography and there are there are there's a capital city yes. on an island surrounded by a circular canal su surrounded by a ring of land. Yes. And then another one and then yes. another one so there's these concentric rings with canals yes. between them. Yes. And then describe the sort of surrounding area because you have a, a wonderful diagram here in yes. your book. Yes. And I should mention that your book, which has just been recently reissued, Plato's Atlantis Story, Text Translation and Commentary by Christopher Gill, Liverpool University Press 2017, mm. an expanded mm. and updated edition of an earlier publication of yours, is the perfect introduction to this whole complex of stories in Greek and English and all very accessible. And at the end, I have these wonderful pictures. Yes. So we have figure three, the capital city of Atlantis, but then figure four... The coastal plain of Atlantis. Yes. What, what's that all about? Well, we're, we're told that the Atlanti Atlantis, the people of Atlantis, or the kings of Atlantis, everything's done by kings. There was a whole kingly family, uh, or series of kingly families. And they organised the... Um, the city was, was, was based in, on a great big plain on the, near to the sea. And there was a very large plain just as were behind the city. And they, they built canals over this vast area, huge area, was irrigated and cut up into geometric bits. And the point of that was, well, partly so that they could cultivate uh, the land, but partly that they could then transmit through this canal system the goods and the metals, the precious metals and the agricultural goods and everything else, down to the port and so trade with it. And so this is all about exploitation, if you like, of, of, the, of the land and the resources and, and of its wealth. But perhaps I could say something about the differences between the two cities. The two, it's a tale of two cities. And, and what, what is the difference between the two cities? In the Critias, which, as I say, gets really to what the story, more as Socrates would be interested in. And we have these two very different states and the presentation of them. Well, what is different about them? in terms of unity. Athens, there is a single city-state 
and it's centred on a single uh, kind of physical and and political institution, which is these 20,000 guardians who were on the Acropolis, and they are in a huge barracks, basically. Another feature of primeval Athens is it has much more land. Before the supposed soil erosion that left Attica a very bare place, it presented as having a huge sort of plain. So, Athens is unified. Single political institution, single place... Atlantis, on the other hand, is not characterised by chaotic confusion, but it's characterised by what you might call structured complexity. We have a royal family with a series of kings, though with an, an original king who was descended from Poseidon, who was the founding god. So we have a royal family that is very extensive. Royal family, but kind of sub-families, sub-royal families. So that's one aspect of it. We have is have political complexity, and there are arrangements governing that. Then we also have complexity at every level, because they took over what was originally a simple sort of home and made an elaborate palace. So we have elaborate palaces, temples, uh, city architecture and so on. So we have structured complexity at the level of town planning, city planning. And then they also, as we've told, um, we have these canals, first of all, ringing the city with a series of concentric circles, so structured complexity at every level. And then there's a huge and complicated military process in which all of these different bits of land have the responsibility for producing so many soldiers, uh, so many sort of charioteers, so many peltasts, whatever they are. The second element is stability. Athens remained the same. The size, uh, wealth and, and everything else and population remained the same. It, Atlantis changed over time. It went from this originally, well, presumably smaller place, but, um, well, originally it was just one, one or two children, one child and then another uh, from Poseidon, but it expanded. It, the royal family expanded, the city expanded, the occupation of the land expanded, and then it became this huge, complex, urban plus rural plus maritime power. So change is a feature of it. Uh, uh, instability, instability, growth, acquisitiveness, luxury, and so on. So the the narrative that we, in some later iterations of the Atlantis story, um, associate with Atlantis of a kind of progressive decadence of the Atlanteans that led to their downfall is to be found in well, Critias's yes, it's story. found by implication in the Critias, but the Critias is quite interesting. It's quite, in some ways, even-handed in the presentation of the two states. And we are told, explicitly actually, that the Atlanteans, although they were very rich, they bore the burden of their great wealth uh, with moderation. So for a long time, they were not corrupted. They didn't become corrupt. They, what they did, they set up a situation a political structure and a physical structure that had the potential of corrupting them. But then eventually they were corrupted. In, in, just in the, in the very last paragraph of this work, we have this extraordinarily rapid decline. And we're told there are two reasons. One is, well, the main reason is, we're told, is that the divine strain in them, which goes back to the, the divine parenthood of, of Poseidon, that that waned, that weakened. So they... they interbred with lesser races or something like that. Well, whatever. Sort of I theological eugenics. Mm, I don't know. But certainly the divinity which had kept them safe, which enabled them to have wealth but not be corrupted, that, and, and, and power and, and, and so forth, that 
it didn't work. They had other mechanisms too for not being corrupted. By the way, they, they had um, the kings themselves had a, a very elaborate ritual for preventing quarrels, and that's described as one of the things that's described in great detail. So they had various mechanisms that did actually keep them okay. So you had complexity and you had wealth, but it didn't corrupt them until it until it did. Until it did. And then it corrupted them big time, apparently. But then the story ends. The third feature of contrast uh, between them is kind of implied by most of what I've said already, which is that the Athens had, as it were, the virtues, especially the virtues of moderation and courage. Oh, and by the way, the the, the guardians, the uh, or uh, the twenty thousand, didn't use uh, gold and silver. Yeah, so, so no coinage. They're ascetic, Spartan-like, yes. pure warriors. Yes, they are pure warriors. They did what <laughs> did what they were told, I suppose. I don't know who told them what to do, but anyway, they they obeyed the rules, whatever the rules were, and and they were in essence a kind of well-behaved fighting force, whatever. But the state was unified, and it had moderation. So. So in a way, by the end of the Critias, we've got the nub of the story. We've got the contrast between the two states. And then, just as the war would have begun, it breaks off, absolutely in mid-sentence. A complete, complete surprise. But in a way, perhaps it isn't such a surprise, because as I say, we have got the nub of what Socrates originally wanted. We've got this contrast between the two states. And we've, we've seen where it's leading. So what Plato spares himself <laughs> is a long and complicated and perhaps rather tedious narrative of events, which he, when, maybe see, his heart wasn't in the end really in it. I mean, he's not an epic poet. He's not going to do all this. This is true, but um, that being said, he never shies away from a long and tedious No, it's of... true. It's true. If it was the most philosophically worthwhile thing to do. But I think he decided it wasn't. And, and then he wrote, I think, The Laws, which seems to be the last work. And in The Laws, he talks a great deal about, of course, about politics, uh, it's the second great political work, but but also he talks about history too. In Laws 3, we have a, a, a resume of history when it deals with Athens, it deals with Persia, and it talks about, about the kind of institutions and framework that enable a state to survive. So I think he, he did want to, to deal with all that, but he wanted to deal with it in a more philosophical way. Do you think he sort of wrote himself into a corner and then just abandoned ship and just went, ah, I can't be bothered with this? One never knows with Plato <laughs> quite what he's up to. <laughs> well, that, as it happens, is a perfect and perfectly enigmatic ending <laughs> for this episode. So thank you very much, Professor Christopher Gill, for being on the podcast. And to all those listening, until next time, stay esoteric. Bye.